Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. Welcome back, everyone. I am so excited to be joined today by Sarah Oberly. We have um, connected on edu Twitter many, many times um, chatting about different things. And so I'm just really excited to see you. I I know the folks listening can't see you, but I can. And so I'm just going to go ahead and let you introduce yourself and tell the listeners about all the many, many, many roles that you have. Thanks, Cindy. It's so nice to be connected finally and see you online in person, right? Yeah, so I am a first grade teacher. I've been teaching first grade here in Delaware. I just finished my 15th year. And I'm also working on a doctorate at the University of Delaware. I'm studying educational leadership and cognitive sciences. I am a mom, of course. Um, I have two daughters who are both in elementary school. I, um, I've been involved with Digital Promise. I know you're familiar with Digital Promise. I, was, I served on their advisory board last year. And this year, um, I am now on our state's Department of Education. Um, I'm on the committee for our professional standards board. So I have my hands in, in several different things, but I am enjoying all of it. And it is pushing me to, to grow and become a better teacher and a better parent and a better student. So yeah, and I'm thrilled to, to chat today with you. One of the things that I wanted to chat about today was was kind of the unique lens that you have because you're in these different roles. And so one of the things we always talk about with the learning scientists is that we want more bi-directional communication, right? That a lot of um, science communication tends to be like scientists talking at people without being able to listen. And so I kind of wanted you to maybe talk about what you see as as benefits that could come from that bidirectional communication. So things that from the classroom, you've gone, oh, hmm, we need some research on that or vice versa, right? So kind of things that you've seen that have been helpful in both directions. Yeah. So it's been very interesting. Um, when I started school, I felt very much pressure to choose a side. Right. And so my professors who are fantastic, but, you know, the academics would would sort of push me to, you know, don't you want to get a Ph.D.? Don't you want to quit and, and come and, and be a student full time and kind of pulling me towards the academics? And meanwhile, my colleagues are kind of like, you're studying what? Like, what are you doing? So initially, I felt very alone, sort of in the middle of these two fields. And there wasn't a place for someone to be involved in in both sides like that dichotomy was just very strong um now that i have you know become more aware of people like you and a lot of the community that is very passionate about practice but also evidence informed practice i feel much more like i am in the role of a matchmaker where i'm kind of like hey you're researching this I know someone who teaches this. How can we get you guys together? Um, because I think that teachers do need to become more informed. And I don't think it should be on them to be, you know, pursuing advanced degrees or reading research articles to have that happen. A couple of the things that I've sort of noticed about, as you mentioned, the sort of the the position of, of academics sort of 
from like a silo coming down to us and saying, here's our knowledge and here's what you should do. It's often, you know, it's in language that is that is not easily understandable if unless you're in the field. Um, it's very, it can be very theoretical. A lot of times it's kind of like, well, here's the findings. Like, what's the point? What are the implications for me as a classroom teacher? So being able to kind of read research, um, become knowledgeable about some of these underlying learning processes, and then say, what does that look like in my classroom? What does that look like for my students? How do I take that knowledge and change what I'm doing day to day? And then how do I share that with my colleagues in a way that's going to be helpful for them, in a way that's not going to um, dissuade them from listening or from seeking out this information, right? Because we all have initiative fatigue. We all have experiences where we feel like we're being told what to do by people that haven't done it or don't understand. So, you know, I think on both sides, I have sat in in meetings, whether it's, you know, special education services meetings, or right now we'll, we'll refer to them as like NTSS. And teachers are sharing things, concerns that they're seeing, but they're not able to clearly articulate what is happening because they don't have the education to understand or to pinpoint. So they'll often say things like, he can't pay attention, right? And there's so much more that could be said about that and the behaviors if we only had the tools and the knowledge to decipher what we see and to understand the signs and symptoms and possible interventions. I'm going to get a little nerdy for a second here because as you were saying those things, I was thinking of a lot of things that I teach in my classes about um, that if if we want good communication with with anyone on any topic ever, we have to use common language. And um, it's one of the things that sometimes bugs me, even about the stuff that we talk about. Like, why do we use the word interleaving? Like that that's a comp like that that it's not common language, right? Or dual coding. Like, why can't we just say words and pictures? Um, because just using that kind of language makes the communication that much more difficult. So that has a lot to do with that, that prior knowledge. And there's a little bit of a curse of knowledge that um, researchers have that they assume that what they're saying makes sense. And it, it doesn't always. <laughs> and then the other thing you were talking about is this issue of transfer, right? Um, so a lot of things that we um, talk about is really about application, right? We don't want people just to know these things. We want them to use these things. Um, but one of the things we know about transfer is that humans are really bad at it. And so the more that we can give those really good concrete examples of how things can be used, I think is critical. I think one of the problems that I see in that realm is that I have, you know, first grade teachers who ask me, so how can I use this in my class? And I've never taught first grade. And so um, getting past that barrier of what exactly can I tell you that is still going to be authentic and nuanced and not saying like, oh, just do retrieval practice, quiz your first graders. Like, no, that's not going to work. What are, what are your thoughts about that? Like, how do we fix it? <laughs> I, right. And and so, and I'm, you know, I teach primary and I am very much aware that I need to stay in my wheelhouse. I wouldn't give a secondary teacher advice for how to use these principles in their classrooms because I don't know that population of students. 
um, and I don't have experience there. But what I do know and am learning more is things like, um, you know, just being in the classroom and telling your students where to look. I need you all to turn your bodies and your eyes towards me. Like these are simple things that I think sometimes we take for granted in the classroom, but the kids need to be explicitly supported in that way or saying, I need empty hands. Um, Just sort of minimizing distractions that are going to jeopardize whatever attention they do have. Um, And making sure that you are being as explicit as possible. And and people don't realize for the little ones, you know, explicit is like, okay, I need you to stand up. Now we're going to push in your chair. We're going to walk to the line or we're going to walk to the carpet or um, whatever it is. But, um, you know, with the little ones, we are really forced to be explicit because we have to make everything sort of visible for them and, and explain what to do. But um, things like retrieval practice, you know, it seems like a simple concept, but for first grade, for example, a lot of times it's, it's, you know, what did we talk about before lunch, right? Not like yesterday or three days ago. And, and we do, I think, have the benefit of having our students essentially all day long, which makes it much easier to sort of interweave content um, and use that spacing technique, use interleaving because we have them in all these different um, contexts. And as we're teaching different content areas can make these connections. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to um, a lot of, I find a lot of the folks that talk about how to apply are more secondary based. And I think you know, I, I hope that eventually I can provide some very tangible, very, you know, concrete ideas for primary teachers to say, hey, if you see this, here's, here's what it might be. Um, but also, here's what you can do. Here are some cues you can give um, to sort of structure your room and your instruction to maximize whatever Um, resources that they they come with. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of times, I think just what you said is true. I think that the primary teachers are doing more good things a lot of the time because they're in a position where they can and they have to. So all of the like explicit instructions is sort of metacognitive related, right? If we make it explicit that you need to do these things, then you might think to do these things on your own and realize that you're doing them. And then retrieval practice. I my my son is just finished kindergarten and my daughter is four. And retrieval practice is plentiful in our house because it's things like, what shape is this? Right. And that's just cued retrieval practice. Um, that's how little kids learn is through retrieval, really. Um, it's just that sort of repetition of, of learning things. So, um, it, it's interesting because one of the pieces of advice that sometimes I end up giving to higher education instructors is you need to get with the other faculty. And talk about the curriculum and where things can be come up more than once because so often they are just siloed in their own departments and they don't really talk across departments too much. Um, and so we miss out on some really good learning opportunities. Sarah, I'm curious about your 
EDD program. It's an EDD program, correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about it. So I teach in an EDD program um, and ours is very unique from what I understand. Um, but I was wondering if you could tell me about, do you guys have like a capstone process um, or a dissertation process at the end? And what does that look like? Yes. Yeah, so um, at the end of all of our core and elective classes that we have to take, there, it was called an educational learning portfolio, which was broken up into three parts. So you're proposing what you're going to have your whole dissertation be about, and then you're defending that. And then you're, you're sort of documenting why this is a problem because you're also, you're supposed to go back to what is your organizational problem that you're, that you're looking to identify and, and propose alternatives to, you know, defend why it's a problem and then show what you're doing to not fix the problem. I mean, that would be ideal, but what you are contributing towards improving the issue. Um, my university just recently switched it over to a dissertation. And now I don't know if that's just a semantics change, um, but it is now officially called a dissertation. I believe the expectations are still the same where you are required to have a certain number of artifacts to support your own efforts and essentially prove that the problem that you've identified is truly a problem. Um, but you know, I have been, as you know, sort of getting involved in things along the way to try to make my own little mark on, um, incorporating cognitive science into pre, pre, um, service teachers education into continued professional development. Um, and so I'm hoping that all these little projects and things will, will, um, count towards my artifacts and, um, <laughs> you know, that it won't all be in vain, but. Yeah. So that's what my program looks like. Well, first, it is definitely not all in vain. Everything that you're doing is good. And um, certainly outsider looking in, it's it's all appreciated, right? Um, that, that just good work of trying to make education better in general. So you're not quite there yet. Where are you in so, the program? No. So I am um, in an elective right now. I'm doing a cognitive science independent study. Um, and I'm actually working on some translating of cognitive science principles for primary educators. Um, so I'm hoping that that will be useful and disseminated publicly. And once that's over in the fall, I have one elective, one core course, and then hopefully February, I'll be starting the dissertation. Woohoo! It's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, when when you finish with um, the translating stuff, you be sure to send that over to us because we will very happily um, disseminate that for you for sure. For sure. Yeah. Okay. So you're also involved in research ed, I know. And um, folks who are listening might not even know what that is. So maybe you can kind of just walk us through what that is and kind of what you're doing with them. Sure. I'd be happy to. So Research Ed is a nonprofit organization. It started in the UK and Tom Bennett is the head of the organization. And it, um, as I understand it, when it began, it was sort of a grassroots movement by practitioners to, to gain access to evidence-informed practices. And um, I attended a conference in the US in the fall and really 
the attendance just made me feel like, gosh, there are people out there that are passionate about the things that I am also passionate about. So empowering teachers, empowering, you know, education practitioners to become knowledgeable about research and to be passionate about infusing it into their practice. So now fast forward to um, this spring, I decided, why not? I don't have anything else to do. Um, (laughs) How about if um, I organize uh, another research ed conference in the US? Um, They are all the time over in the UK. It seems like they're having them once a month over there. But in the US, I believe there's only been about a handful. And it's very much like if you want to attend one, then plan it, make it happen, right? Anyone can can take it on. So um, fortunately, my school district said, okay, like, we'll go on this adventure with you, we will, you know, host the will provide the venue. And um, I've got some other great folks who have stepped in to support me. And it's all on a voluntary basis, you don't get paid for anything. You just kind of beg people to take pity on you and travel and speak for free. And um, attendance is super affordable. So what I'm doing right now is um, we have a location set and we have um, some speakers who have already said, hey, count me in. Um, We still have over a year. It's not until October of 2024. So I haven't put out anything official for um, speaker proposals, but that will come when I solidify a few more of the logistics. So I am hoping that locally, I can grow the interest of teachers in, you know, taking on their own sort of interest and learning more about how does learning happen, right, which is something that I think we all should be taught as teachers, we are tasked with facilitating the learning process, but yet we aren't taught anything about how learning happens. So research ed is is very focused on disseminating a lot of cognitive science-based evidence, but there's certainly other topics too, leadership and and diversity, equity, inclusion, and, um, you know, ed tech. And so I'm hoping that locally here and beyond that people are also inspired as I was when I attended the the fall conference. Yeah, I think my favorite thing about research ed is exactly that. These are it is all people who are coming together just because they care, right? Um, the people who are attending are attending just so they can make the world a better place. The people who are speaking are speaking just so they can make the world a better place because it is all voluntary. And I think that's a pretty incredible thing. Um, so if you're listening and you've never heard of that, it's Research Ed, and there will be one in October of 2024 in Delaware. So if you can make it, come join us. It'll be great. Uh, I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Sarah, I, I also kind of want to clue people in just because you are in this in this in-between place or you're in both worlds. I guess you've got one foot in in each world. I, I'm wondering if you have any advice for folks who they've they've clearly found us if they're listening to this right now, but they might not know where else to go. And so are there like favorite books or resources or anything that you would recommend to folks to check out if they were wanting to delve deeper? 
on their own? I have certainly learned a ton from the research ed folks, and and many of them are authors. And and again, their focus is all about practitioner-oriented evidence. So any of their publications, I would say right now I am in, I'm reading How Learning Happens, Paul Kirshner and Carl Hendrick. And that's actually what I'm basing my, my current studies off of that I'll be hopefully translating some research for primary practitioners. I think um, Inner Drive, Bradley Bush and his crew, they have really parsimonious, useful, teacher-friendly materials that they offer about these principles of, of cognitive science and how they relate to learning learning scientists, of course. <laughs> yeah, I know Tracy Tokohama Espinosa does a lot of mind-brain education work and um, is really focused again on the classroom. And, and there are just so many folks out there that, that are um, dedicated to supporting those of us that are in the classroom in front of children every day that just really want to know how can we improve what we're doing and how can we improve our students' outcomes. So yeah, happy to share more. No, that's great. Um, The other (laughs) thing I was going to ask you was exactly that, if people wanted to reach out to you. So I was just going to ask you to share your Twitter handle with folks so that if they want to follow you to get updates on Research Ed and things like that, they could do that. Sure. So I am at S underscore Oberly. It's O-B-E-R-L-E. Perfect. And then if folks want to get in touch with you or they want to um, be able to follow and see a lot of the stuff that you're doing, and again, those updates on Research Ed, they can follow all of that there. And yes. if they're not on Edu Twitter already, they should be because there's lots and lots of good stuff that, that comes out. Even, even now in this world of Twitter, it's still a good, happy place to be. Okay. Is there anything else that I have not asked you that you were hoping I would or, or advice that you want to give or anything at all that I missed? I would just emphasize, you know, teachers should not underestimate the knowledge that they've gained from their experience. And that just because we can't name these things that we have discovered or learned just from trial and error, we can't name them with the scientific word necessarily, doesn't mean that we don't have a heck of a lot to offer for academia. And I think making our needs known, there's a lot of good research going on, but Hey, this is this is what I'm seeing right now. Here's what over and over my colleagues are saying that we're seeing that we're concerned about. Um, I think you know, giving teachers a voice to have a say in what's being studied, and then asking us, you know, what would this look like for you? I I, I really think that you know, there's there's not a there's not enough respect for teacher voice and teacher expertise and and that's not to knock academia because i you know i'm certainly appreciative of of all the knowledge that we are gaining from from academia and i think that it's well worth understanding um, those underlying principles that were that we're gaining from academia, but I think that teacher voice is just so important and so valuable. I completely agree. Um, just as I was saying, like I feel like primary educators do most of this stuff all the time, very naturally. I think any educator, once you've been in a classroom, you, you, as you said, maybe through trial and error, but you know students, you know them better than than I do, certainly. Um, and it's why that bi-directional communication is just so important because um, having the opportunity to, yeah, learn from 
you learn from educators, learn from teachers about how they see this stuff playing out in their classrooms just helps me to be able to talk to other educators to give them ideas for things that they can do as well. So I I feel like my eyes have been opened many times by the really, really cool things that, that teachers are doing. And really my role often in these like professional development workshops or whatever is just to offer tweaks, right? To, to name it and then to say, okay, you're already doing great things. If we just make this one tiny little change to what you're doing, it'll have a really big impact because it's already good. It's already really good. Um, so thank you for saying that. I think that that is um, something that needs to be said more often. Yeah. And, and you know, on the other hand, to give credit to um, some of the researchers that I just personally have come in contact with, and only because I am at the university, um, I have said, hey, do you want to come on in? Like, come see, come into my classroom. You're welcome to come observe. I would love your feedback. I would love to hear what you're seeing that could help me. And I, I've had several people be very receptive to saying, I will come in. So I think, you know, just having intermediary that can make those connections could open up so many opportunities for both research and practice to benefit from from each other, each other's expertise. That's so cool that you do that. If there's a a teacher listening right now who's like, that's so cool, I want to do that. How do they get started? Just like a cold email to a local professor? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, um, I'm always like... What what's the worst that can happen? Just try, you know, and, and if you're doing it in good faith and you really want to support what what they're doing and you you value their expertise to improve what you're doing, why not? I mean, even if they say no or they don't respond, you try. So I would definitely recommend that. And um yeah, I've 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 developed some great alliances and I, I wish that I would have done it sooner, right? Because we we sit in our classrooms and our schools and say like, well, they don't, you know, they've never done it or they don't understand. But I think when we take the time to connect with each other, there's a there's a lot of benefits that can that can come from that. So yeah, I've been pleasantly surprised at the receptivity of, of some of these folks. And um, I hope that they're gaining insight too from, from spending time with me and, and with my students. I'm certain that they are. I, you're saying this and I'm like, all right, I'm going to contact my local school district and see if I can sit in on some classes. Yeah, um, yeah because I, you're absolutely right. If, if we want If we want researchers to be able to do a better job talking to teachers, they need to be spending time in that space. So I think that's such a smart thing to do. My wheels are spinning now. I don't know if you can tell. <laughs> and, and to present it as, uh, you know, from, from your point of view, I'm not coming in to judge you. I'm coming to, because I, I value what's happening in, in real life, right? And I want to see sort of the nuances, the interactions, all of the richness that that the classroom has to offer that just can can't be captured in in these settings that are are much more contrived. So I think everyone has to have a good attitude about it, right? The teachers have to feel like, hey, come on in, um, and and the researchers have to you know feel have to present themselves as being open to to learn to learning from the teachers as well. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think that if, if both parties see this as a learning opportunity, then there really are a lot of opportunities to learn. That sounds so dorky, but that's... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, exactly. There was one more thing that I thought I would mention. And, you know, there's a lot of focus right now on explicit instruction in education, which we talked previously about the fact that as primary educators, a lot of times we have to be explicit. Like our students can't read. We can't just leave a message up on the board. Everything has to be said and modeled and explained. Yet our pre-service education is very often um, not explicit. And and then we have teachers that come into the classroom and it's all trial and error. So we are figuring uh, figuring out how our students learn, what works and what doesn't, as we gain experience through sort of this problem-based learning that we're, we're saying we shouldn't be doing with our students. And yet this is what's happening with our teachers, with our new teachers. So instead of coming into the classroom with, you know, my first group of students, and I have been given very explicit directions on how to manage behavior, how to orient attention, things about instructional practices, all of those things, I'm just kind of like, let me try this. That didn't work. Let me try that. And that takes years to refine. And certainly there would be plenty of that, whether you had explicit instruction or not, because it takes time for all of us to, to figure out who we are as, as teachers and role models and instructors. But, you know, there's a lot to be said for we want to provide structured, explicit experiences for our students, but we're not doing that for our teachers. Um, and so it's one big inquiry-based <laughs> experience for us, which is what we're saying really is not ideal for our learners. Yeah, that's exactly right. So for for novice learners, you know, when you don't know a lot about something like how to manage a classroom or whatever, right, that's when you need that explicit instruction. And then you know, the inquiry-based stuff can come when you have more expertise in an area, but um, yeah, you're absolutely right that we've got folks who we are just kind of like throwing in the deep end um, and expecting them to use basically a constructivist approach to develop their own knowledge about being teachers. And that's not the most effective way to do that. We know we have lots of research to support that at this point. As you were saying that, though, I, I kept thinking, what is the alternative? And is the alternative that we put folks in like, I don't know, like a simulated classroom experience and have somebody there to like tell them what they should be doing as they go through their day? I don't think there's anything you can do that will replace the act of being in the classroom, right? You can learn all about it. But when you're standing there in front of all those kids, I mean, nothing can can prepare you for that feeling. Same with parenting, by the by. Oh, I know for a whole sure. lot about parenting, <laughs> but I, I don't know how to apply any of it. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, however, I think there is some knowledge that can be almost like a toolkit that can that can support you through that process. Knowing that, you know what, I can't sit these kids down for 45 minutes and read them a story and then ask them questions and then have them do an assignment. That is way too much, too high of an expectation for them. Knowing, you know, about questioning techniques, knowing about these sort of foundational learning principles, um, just, you know, it's not going to make you an expert overnight, 
but it will position you in a much better uh, place to um, leverage at least whatever you possibly can in, in being a novice, right? And having more tools can can never be a bad thing. So I think that, again, the cognitive science there with not taking three years to realize that my students need a break or my students can't do this independently or I didn't give them enough directions. I didn't have them. I didn't reduce the the visual distractions. All of these things that we learn over time. If you know that going in, you're you're much better prepared to to be successful. I guess I didn't realize that a lot of that isn't in pre service um, education. I I didn't realize that. No. So yeah, there's there's a lot of work to be done. I think I might connect with you a little bit more to see how I can get involved in some of those things. It's it's good things. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sarah. Um, It's been a pleasure to get to know you a little bit better um, and to hear about all the good things that you're doing. So keep fighting the good fight for the science of learning. And thank you so much. Thank you, Cindy. This episode is funded by listeners like you. To support our work and gain access to exclusive content, visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists.